Galatians chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 11. We read now, when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul writing to the Galatians, recounting an experience, not recorded in the book of Acts, but following Acts chapter 15, we're told from Paul that I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men had come from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, or those Jews. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even my man Barnabas, that's not in there, but I, I sense that, was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles, and not as the Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? You need to understand in context, this comes at the tail end of a very important moment in church history. Leading up to Acts chapter 15, uh, there had never really been much of an issue within Christianity concerning grace or freedom, the concept of legalism, the law, and mainly because Jesus was a Jew, the apostles were Jews. The 120 in Acts chapter 2 were Jews. The church started in a Jewish capital of Jerusalem. It spread among Jewish communities, Judea and Samaria. For the first decade, the church was Jewish. And so there was no issue in regards to circumcision. Everyone was already circumcised. There was no issue in regards to keeping the dietary laws because that was a cultural thing they were already familiar with, already culturally accustomed to. And yet Peter, in Acts chapter 10, is called. Supernatural thing takes place. We're going to look at it in a few minutes. But he goes to the house of a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's at that point that now this Jewish church has a problem. What do you do with the Gentiles? And really the controversy boiled down to just two fundamental issues. Yes, we understand salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus' work on the cross, that was a universal concept. You look at all the sermons Peter gave, John gave, uh, in the book of Acts, they all focused on Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and the freedom that that provides. But now that you had Gentiles, what about certain things that were just kind of culturally important to being Jews? Like, if you gave your life to Jesus and you were a Gentile, should you also have to become a Jew to be a Christian? Should you have to be circumcised? Should you at least obey the dietary customs? The di so we had this blending of cultures that was taking place. The Jews, very unique, very particular culture. And Greeks, Gentiles, Romans, Hellenists, also very different and particular in regards to as it compared to the Jews. And so you had this class of cultures, and the big debate, the big controversy, the big discussion is how do these cultures merge within this concept of not just salvation, but grace. And in Acts 15, the controversy had kind of reached its head 
where you had a group of Jews adamant that the Gentile believers had to be circumcised and obey the law to be Christians. And Paul, on the flip side, was like, over my dead body. That's not happening. That's not going down. That's not what grace, period, is. That's not what Jesus came to do on the cross. I will fight that. And so they sent these two groups to Jerusalem. The apostles met. You had Peter. You had James. You had John. They hear out the arguments. Not only does Paul present his case and Barnabas provide a a substantiating account, but then Peter stands up and he's like, we are out of our minds. If God is down with the Gentiles without them being circumcised or eating of the dietary laws because the Holy Spirit has indwelled them, what are we talking about? And James agrees with Peter. And so they give Barnabas and Paul the right hand of fellowship. They reject this heresy. They confirm that it's salvation, sanctification, justification. We are right before God because of nothing we do, but because of everything he did. And we can't add to it. And this was settled. So Paul takes this letter that was given, goes back to Antioch, 300 miles north. It's his home church, his home base. He's preparing to go out on a second missionary journey back to the region of Galatia. And it's during this time that Peter comes up to see what's happening in Antioch. And understand, whereas Jerusalem was like ground zero, this church in Antioch was the happening place. There was a lot of things happening in Jerusalem, such as persecution and a famine, and there's some political unrest that the church was suffering. Antioch not dealing with those things at at, at kind of like this junction of the empire. I mean, it was the place to be. And so Peter catches words like, I'm going to go check this out. Can you imagine being in Antioch and you have Peter, the apostle Peter? I mean, you've heard all the stories, but now you're going to be able to hear them directly from his mouth. You can ask questions. And you're hanging out, and apparently it's just this grand old time that in Antioch, they had balanced this clash of cultures. Half the church was Jewish, half the church was Gentile. All of the church didn't care. They loved each other, and they hung out with each other, and they blessed one another. And we're even told that when Peter came up, good old Jewish kosher Peter is like, dude, I'm going to chill out with these Gentiles, and I'm going to rock me some bacon, I have freedom in Christ to eat a BLT. And so they're hanging out and he's eating bacon, lettuce, and tomato and just jamming, having a good time until some dudes show up from his home crib there in Jerusalem who arrive to Antioch from James who are not totally cool with this. And we're told that Peter separates himself, goes back over to his buddies. And then, if that weren't bad enough, he goes to these Gentiles and he's like, dude, you guys, like, you need to understand Jewish sensibilities. What you're doing is kind of offensive. And I know you have the freedom and all that, but at the same time, you know, you should prefer the weaker brother, right? And you should uh, not eat like Gentiles do and instead adopt Jewish custom. And, And you even see this in Paul's criticism, right? Because Paul's like, once again, we've just dealt with this. This has just been settled. I've got a note from Peter and James and John. And now Peter's coming up here and his actions are not demonstrating the very gospel he's already defended and fought for. So this kind of riles up Paul. 
And you do get the, the sense that, that Paul was not exactly a people person. I mean, I think that's kind of a fair criticism or at least analysis of Paul because he sees Peter doing all this. And I mean, this is the Pope, right? And he goes right up, knocks that hat off his head and is like, you're to be blamed, dog, because what you're doing is flowing in total, uh, totally against the gospel of Jesus. Would you even claim to believe you're acting against it? And then he says, right? If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles, which is funny to me, because he does this in front of everyone. And what is he saying? In front of them all, he says, yo, I know you don't want the Jews to know you like bacon, but dude, you love bacon. When you came up here, you couldn't fit enough of it in your mouth. Like you wanted bacon cologne because you just love, like you had never had it before. And this is cool. But now that your buddies have showed up, if you who have enjoyed living in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, now that they've come, why are you compelling Gentiles to live as Jews? Now, we, we dealt with this kind of extensively last Sunday. And our legalism is ultimately birthed in, in the petri dish of fear and not faith. But, but in conversations that I had with you guys after the service, it was very easy to kind of take this story, personalize it, and sympathize with Peter. Like it was. Like I feel that way. You feel that way. You've articulated it. You know, kind of like I understand that uh, where Peter, he's in this predicament, he's in this pickle. Um, he's got friends that are kind of legalistic. He's got other friends enjoying freedom. He's kind of caught in the middle. He knows it's freedom, but at the same time, he's kind of like wanting, he's stuck in the middle and that's a bad place to be. We've all been there. And so I kind of feel a little for Peter. You shouldn't at all. Like, for example, like, let me try to, like, quantify what Peter actually did. Because once I kind of quantify this in a real-world analogy, none of you are going to side with Peter. Let's say you, and I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to call you Cracker Jack or Cracker Jill. Just male and female. Yes, that means you're white, okay? <laughs> and here you are, Cracker Jack sitting at a table one Sunday afternoon, enjoying a nice, delicious, juicy pork chop with a group of missionaries from Africa. But you catch word that two of your white supremacist, vegan Christian friends, we're going to name them Whitey McFly and Roscoe Arian. They're going to show up to hang out. So here you are jamming on your pork chop with your African missionary buddies when you hear your white supremacist vegan friends are about to show up. Now, sure. Well, you know that as a result of grace, period, Jesus has made us all one people, right? That there's no difference between blacks and whites. You also know that because of Jesus's work on the cross, we have been liberated from the dietary restrictions of veganism so that we're free to eat whatever we want. But you're also aware that these brothers, Whitey McFly and Roscoe Arian, they not only find eating meat, especially pork, to be repulsive, you know, because they view their vegan lifestyle as being more pleasing to God, but they also see the mixing of races as kind of an equal abomination, separate but equal. 
God made, right? Each according to its kind. Now, this places you in a kind of a precarious position, right? Like, since you don't want to cause a stir within the church and would prefer to maintain unity, you know, by not offending the weaker brothers, not only do you get up from the all-black table to go sit now at the all-white table, but before doing so, you instruct your African missionary friends that they're also no longer allowed to eat that delicious pork chop and now should only eat fruit and berries. That's nuts, right? I mean, I mean, like there's not one of us would say that's cool at all. First, you're a racist. And do we eat, like, are there white supremacist vegan Christians to start with? Like, like there's so many parts of the story that are outlandish. But my point is, if you had this sensibility, like, no, I would have a big problem with someone doing that. Then now you can relate to Paul. Because that's actually what Peter is doing. It's a racial deal based in food. That's a problem. And to make matters worse in our story, the man doing this is Peter. Like not only is Peter a buddy with Jesus, walked with Jesus, called by Jesus, one of the 12 who rolled with Jesus, he's like in the inner circle of the entourage. He's turtle. That went over everyone's head. That's okay. That was an actual entourage reference. Anyway, there was a show. Peter... Yeah, some of you, I see the faces. It's okay. It's okay. Peter's in the inner circle. Peter walked with Jesus. Peter, as an apostle, represents Christ. Peter had significant authority in the church. And the sad tale is that Peter's actions were not Christ-like. In actuality, the way he handled the situation in Antioch ran completely counterintuitive to the truth of the gospel message, which explains why Paul is not only incensed, but felt an obligation to confront Peter in a public, brazen way. Like Paul believed that this was not a matter that could be handled privately between brothers. Like Paul he had to call Peter out in front of everyone because what Peter had done was in front of everyone. He felt this responsibility to act swiftly and decisively. Lest anyone get the false impression that somehow Peter was justified in what he was doing. From Paul's perspective, the gospel message in this moment was experiencing maybe its greatest assault ever. A respected man a man of God, like Peter, and to a lesser extent, Barnabas, acting in such a way would have had tragic consequences. It would have set a terrible precedent. Paul understood that if this situation went unaddressed, undealt with, undecided, well, he feared it could have undermined everything that had been settled in Acts chapter 15. Now, what really amazes me about the entire situation is the specific issue that Paul takes Peter to task concerning. Look at it again. 
Paul recounts, he says, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Do you notice something missing? Like amazingly, what upset Paul more than anything else wasn't Peter's blatant racism, but instead his hypocrisy and active limitation of Christian liberty. Now don't get me wrong. Jewish bigotry towards the Gentiles had no place in the first century church, nor do similar prejudices have a place in the church today. And yet, this was not the issue that Paul goes after. Instead, look at it, he targets, quote, the manner in which they were living. Before everyone, Paul is saying, he's saying, Peter if you, as a good Jew, have no problems eating unkosher, then why are you asking Gentiles to now forgo this liberty? Like, imagine that. Paul's approach to Peter in this situation would be similar to like someone overlooking the fact that Cracker Jack left the black table for the white table and instead getting in his face about his hypocritical position concerning pork chops. Like, that's what's happening here, which is interesting to me. And I think the contrast exists for a reason to stress how important Paul saw what was happening, which leads us to the question, why? Like, why did Paul find this issue to be so important? Last Sunday, we addressed how fear is often the driver behind the limitation of Christian liberty. And yet, you should understand that fear is not the only motivator. Sadly, there are many Christians who seek to limit liberty and minimize the freedom of grace and grace alone, and they do this from a false position of moral superiority. Like, realize this. The driver behind Jewish bigotry towards the Gentiles, it rested in a false belief that their adherence to the law, specifically circumcision, and dietary restrictions made them morally superior to the Christians, the Gentiles, who didn't engage in such practices. The reasons the Jews saw themselves as better Christians than the Gentiles is because they saw their circumcision as making them more right, more righteous, more sanctified, more pleasing that they're obeying the dietary restrictions and refusing to eat pork made them, in the eyes of God, more holy, more righteous, that God was more pleased with them as opposed to the Gentiles who didn't engage in such practices. And it's this reality that explains why instead of addressing Peter's bigotry, Paul targets the root behind his bigotry. Like Paul had to act. Because Peter's act of limiting the liberty these Gentiles were enjoying would have substantiated the very reasoning that had, that had fostered this faulty sense of Jewish moral superiority, superiority over the Gentiles. What Peter was doing was dangerous, not just because it was a perversion of grace, because it substantiated a hierarchy in the family of God. And that could not be tolerated. Since obeying the law, which we've kind of coined as, as a grace and gospel distortion. You know, it's grace and do these things and God will be pleased. Or grace, but don't 
do these things. Religion. The law. Since obeying the law, and this was decided in Acts 15, had no bearing on one standing before God. Or for that matter, even the maintaining of that standard. Paul's challenge of Peter was aimed at pointing out, hammering home, making it crystal clear that what you do doesn't play in to God's favor. That Peter, his actions, that he had fundamentally zero justification to compel Gentiles to live as Jews. That he was fostering a lie. And it's to this point that I want to speak just for a minute to an issue that constantly surfaces, and it's so tiring. Every time the discussion of Christian liberty is discussed. And that's the topic of alcohol. Every time you talk about Christian alcohol, it always goes back to uh, Christian liberty. It always goes back to alcohol. And honestly, like I find Paul's approach in this passage extremely helpful. For I see really no difference between Peter's instruction that these Gentiles were to lay aside their liberties by eating kosher and the predominant position held by many fundamental Christians that believers should abstain from drinking alcohol. Both positions, from my vantage point, stem from the same root. For example, let me illustrate this. When you replace the topic in these verses from eating kosher with, to, to drinking alcohol, verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 of Galatians 2 reads the same way. I'll read it for you. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James who took issue with Christians drinking alcohol, Peter would enjoy a beer with the Gentiles. But when these men came, Peter put down his beer and separated himself from those who were still drinking, fearing those who found this liberty offensive. And the rest of the Jews who were also enjoying their liberty by drinking with the Gentiles played the hypocrite with Peter, so that even Barnabas who's like a brewmaster, was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, enjoy beer in the same manner of Gentiles and not as Jews who abstain, why do you compel Gentiles to abstain? It, like, I didn't change much, right? I took out the topic of eating and replaced it with the topic of drinking. And it flows in an identical manner. Now, don't get me wrong. I hate the fact that I even have to quantify this, but I do. It's not that I'm ignorant to the potential danger the abuse of alcohol can have in a person's life and a person's family. Like, I have seen people's lives destroyed. Because they were addicted to a substance. I've seen men ruin, ruin their marriage, destroy the lives of their children, like, like, it's an undeniable reality that our society does indeed have a drinking problem. It's true. Just look around. It's also true that in love, Christians should wisely consider how we should enjoy this liberty and the presence of people who have a history with substance abuse. Like, that's a real conversation that needs to happen in the church. It does. 
Like even if you're pro-liberty, like we are, there are people who struggle with a real addiction, a real disease, and we have to have real conversations about how, as loving Christians, we should encourage that person, uplift that person, and yet, what irritates me so much is that many who preach the prohibition of alcohol end up doing so from a position of moral superiority. It's irritating. Like, sadly, instead of having an honest discussion as to the way in which the Bible addresses substance abuse, that abusing alcohol is a manifestation of a much deeper spiritual issue, that it's not alcohol that destroyed your life, it's you. Like, we should have that conversation about how we should go about that, how we should deal with that. The church should also have a conversation on how we should effectively and can biblically effectively help people struggling with any addiction, including alcoholism. That it's not 12 steps, but Jesus, who can change a heart and transform a life and free someone of destructive behaviors. And yet, most of the conversations I've had with Christians who are vehemently against drinking alcohol never end up focusing on those issues and instead boil down to one underlying point. I hear it. While I concede the Bible doesn't prohibit a Christian from drinking, you'll be a better person if you don't drink. And what they're saying is you'll be a better person like me if you don't drink. And there's a problem with that. And the problem with that, and the reason that this line of thinking doesn't jive with me, and why, and i got to speak personally, I have fought to defend the freedom, the right of myself and others to enjoy liberty at a great personal cost. The reason this strikes a chord with me is that this position is nothing more than a gospel distortion founded on a false sense of what makes a person moral. Like, I know that's a heavy statement, but the reality is that most arguments advocating for the prohibition of alcohol or any liberty, fill in the blank, it doesn't have to just be alcohol, those positions fundamentally oppose the concept of grace, period, because they claim this, and pay attention, they claim with so many uncertain words that what a person does or what a person abstains from doing plays a role in an individual's sanctification. And that's not biblical, friend, because it's grace and grace alone. You see, while the Bible is crystal clear that drunkenness is a sin, it's a sin inconsistent with a life that has been gripped with grace and grace alone. It doesn't work together. And by the way, that's a point we should all be able to universally agree upon. The truth is that drinking alcohol or abstaining from drinking alcohol has zero bearing on a person's right standing before God. It has no part in your justification and it has no role in your sanctification. Like, please understand, if you have the conviction that you need to abstain from drinking alcohol, you have that right, you have that freedom, you have that prerogative. I will fight to defend that as long as you realize the following three points. One, you have no right to impose that conviction onto anyone else. Two, separating yourselves 
from those who do drink is wrong. Peter, both issues, taking a conviction, putting it onto the Gentiles, separating from the Gentiles who didn't share that conviction, or thirdly, that holding that position does not make you a better Christian than those who don't. I'll flip it around, which is probably more relevant for this crowd. If you do enjoy the liberty of drinking alcohol and hold to that position, you don't share that conviction, you need to realize three points. One, you have no right to force that conviction onto someone who has the conviction not to drink. You should support that. It's fine. doesn't matter one way or the other. It's all good. Nor should you separate yourself from someone that doesn't drink because we're called to unity. And thirdly, Holding to that position does not make you a better Christian. It doesn't make you holier. It doesn't make you more in tune with grace either. It really doesn't matter. And we make too much of something that the Bible doesn't make a lot of. You see, as Christians, we're called to one moral standard. And that's not each other. It's Jesus right? Like that Jesus is the template for what a godly life should look like. If you want to see what grace should really do in a life, how grace manifests itself in a life, how not just understanding the concept of grace period, but enjoying that concept, walking in that concept. If you want to see what a life that gets it and experiences it looks like, don't look at me or someone else in this room. Look to Jesus, Like, Jesus is the full manifestation of what a godly life looks like. So look to Jesus, not each other. And I can't help but point out that in a culture that also had a major problem with alcoholism, Jesus drank responsibly and he did so in public. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus said, the son of man came eating and drinking. And people accuse him of saying, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, or one given to wine, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Hey, if you don't, if you don't want your pastor drinking alcohol, then don't have Jesus as your pastor. Because that's the standard that I'm, I'm going to walk in. Like, my standard is Jesus. I, it really, if I can be the most Christ-like pastor possibly, that, that's my aim. That's what I'm trying to go for. I fall very short, by the way. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Absolutely. But the standard, the standard is not you or someone you know. It's Jesus. And Jesus drank alcohol. He didn't get drunk. He did it responsibly. And he didn't set a template that it can only be in your house in private. No, he drank in public. As Paul continues his letter, we're going to move on. Specifically following his full rebuttal of these men who had come teaching this gospel distortion. Paul is, is, is in these verses, he's transitioning his letter in an interesting way. By focusing on this situation with Peter and Antioch, he's doing so to address kind of a, an unspoken, hypothetical, but very logical question you would have falling on the coattails of him recounting in the first 
10 verses, this whole story of him and Antioch going to Jerusalem, settling the issue of grace and grace alone once and for all. There's this question on the minds of people, on my mind, the mind of the reader, that if, if grace, period, if this matter had been settled, right, many years earlier, and you're now in Galatia, you're one of these Gentiles, you're reading of this letter, like you've got to be thinking, like why has the issue resurfaced, right? Like why are we dealing with this then if it was dealt with then, and why is it here? And Like what's the deal with that? And I believe that, that Paul brings up this situation with Peter for a lot of reasons of which we spent the last two Bible studies unpacking. But in a broader sense, I think Paul includes this story to answer this hypothetical question by illustrating this very important point, how easy it is to fall into the trappings of legalism. Like, it's amazing that of all men who fell into this trap, it was Peter. And let me establish my case by just reading a section of Scripture. Because in Acts chapter 11, Peter comes back from this whole situation um, in Caesarea, where the gospel goes into the house of Cornelius, where he had started in Joppa. Like, he recounts the story. And so I'm going to shut up and just kind of read you his accounting of what happened. This is before he comes to Antioch. Keep that in mind. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up from Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, because I'm holy. And in a trance, I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down out of heaven by four corners. It came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And I heard this voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so, Lord. For nothing uncommon or unclean has at any times entered my mouth. I'm a good kosher Jew. But the voice from heaven answered again from heaven saying what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times because my head's thick. That's not in there, but that's true. And all were drawn up into heaven again. And at that very moment, as he's thinking about what happened, the meaning of it, three men stood at the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren, other six Jewish friends, accompanied me. We entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa, call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all of your household will be saved to have salvation. And as I began speaking, so Peter says, as I began explaining to this, this man Cornelius and to the rest of this Gentile house how you can be saved, what happens? God interrupts his Bible study. For the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us from the beginning. And man, I tell you, that is every pastor's dream to have your Bible study interrupted by, by the Holy Spirit. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gifts as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. They glorified God, saying that God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, just a few years before Peter traveled to Antioch and effectively stepped in it, he had been accused of the very thing he was afraid of in Antioch. 
You catch that? Jews questioning his decision to eat with Gentiles. And yet, in this instance, Peter doesn't placate to their sensibilities, nor does he tiptoe around the truth as to not offend someone. In Acts 11, Peter boldly defends his actions and the gospel message. He's like, what was I supposed to do? God was in it. God was acting. God was working. You wanted me to say time out, God. This is not the plan. No, man, I was along for the ride, and this is what happened, so you got to get over it. So how is it, right, that Peter, once a defender of the gospel, now finds himself slipping into legalism? The answer? The answer is that the law is our natural default anytime we take our eyes off of Jesus. Like, let me explain that in a theological sense. You see, the lie of the various gospel distortions, the fundamental lie is that that anything can actually be added to grace. Like, that's the lie, that grace needs a partner in crime, because it doesn't. It's a total misconception. Adding something to the gospel no longer makes it the gospel. Adding something or trying to take something away from grace no longer makes it grace. Don't forget, as when Paul introduced the whole thing in Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Wait a second, which is not another. Like, I just need to make sure you know it's not a gospel. It's not another gospel. It's different. It's not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Because the old covenant of law was instituted by God to specifically deal with our fallen nature, whereas the new covenant of grace was designed to operate within a new nature brought forth through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Friend, please understand, grace, period, is an either-or proposition. You are either abiding in God's grace or you're trying to measure up to God's law. You're either free or you're in bondage. Your right standing before God is either earned or it's given, maintained or enjoyed, marked by a clenched fist or illustrated with an open hand. It's not one or the other. You're either approaching God on Sinai or Golgotha. You're either holding on to tablets of stone or you're bending a knee before a wooden cross. It's either Moses or it's Jesus. It's either an example to emulate or a savior to intervene. It's either religion or it's relationship. Your works or his work. Your striving or his sufficiency. When it comes to God's favor, it is either achievement-based or acceptance, walking in his spirit, or your flesh, God's grace, or his law, it's either one or it's the other. It's not both and. You can't add to grace. It wants no partner. You see, this either or reality explains why it is that anytime we take our eyes off of Jesus, where do our eyes inevitably go? to one place and one place alone, the law. It's either Jesus 
and the cross, or it's the law in Sinai. While grace is conditioned for life in the Spirit, it is our flesh that so quickly reverts back to the law. And it does this for a reason. Because in its pride, it wants to feed its craving to be self-right. Self-righteousness. The law is our default mode of our fallen nature and not the new. And this is why it is so important we're constantly on guard for the subtle incursions of legalism, not just in our church, but in our own lives. Like, not only is legalism natural, because it's our default mode, right? But legalism is an indication we're no longer walking in the spirit, but we've reverted to the flesh. If you learn anything at all from Peter's blunder, from his failure, it is the stark reality as to how easy it is to exchange grace for the law, liberty for bondage, when we take our eyes off of Jesus and place it back onto the law. Our flesh craves religion. Our spirit produces a walk with God. It's why, as my dear friend, theological buddy Gary Lawler remarked the other day, we were having coffee, discussing the importance of the Outlaw Church series. He said this. He said, Galatians is my go-to book anytime I feel the Pharisee in me starting to raise his ugly head. And why is it important? Because the Pharisee in us tries to raise his ugly head all the time. Legalistic tendencies in my life need to be addressed not only for how they negatively impact, how they affect those around me, but legalistic tendencies in my heart need to be addressed immediately for what they indicate is happening in my heart. What it's the evidence of. You know the good news about this battle royale between Paul and Peter is that it would seem that there's evidence to be presented that Peter not only heard what Paul was saying, but totally repented. That he was like, you, Paul, you're totally right. Like, as a matter of fact, at the end of his life, the final words that we have recorded from Peter, like, I, I love them in context to this confrontation, Right? Let me read them for you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 18, Peter writes this. He says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Jesus in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And then check it out. As our beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom of, given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things. And then I love it because I, because I definitely see an elbow jab. Speaking in them things, well, in which are some hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist through their own destruction, as they also do the rest of Scripture. You, therefore, beloved, 
since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led with the error of the wicked. And then look at what he closes with. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Not only does he exhort Paul, the wisdom given to that man, but he closes with, man, it's grace. Grace, Jesus, grace, Jesus, Jesus is grace. Keep your eyes on him and you walk in grace. Take your eyes off of him, you walk in the law. Now, I know that we've kind of been really unpacking the section of scripture. Like maybe even to a, a point where you're like, let's move on. And I agree, we won't do that this morning, but we will next Sunday. <laughs> but in trying to kind of summarize, quantify, wrap up everything that we've been discussing, I want to present all of these concepts in this way. And they're loaded statements. It's written down at c316.tv. You can chew on them on your own. Legalism is born in fear, not faith. Relying on law, not grace. Emphasizing my sacrifice, not his. Fostering a sense of moral superiority, appealing to my flesh. Making legalism contagious, ultimately divisive, and in the end, destructive. And did you notice that about our story? Side note. That what, one of the things that shocked Paul was that not, not only did Peter do this, but in his legalism, like, a whole bunch of people followed him. So that even Barnabas, like, Paul's even shocked. Like, even Barnabas. Like, legalism. Like, legalism is a very contagious concept. It's contagious within a church. It's contagious within my heart. When I start entering a sense of moral superiority, when I start walking in fear, it takes over everything. Legalism's like kudzu, friend. Like you just let it, let it lie and it'll take over everything. Crawl up trees, power lines, poles. It'll take over houses if you let it. And it grows fast. And the longer you allow it, the harder it is to root it out. And yet, the gospel is born in faith, not fear. Relying on grace, not law. Emphasizing his sacrifice, not mine. Fostering a sense of moral humility, consistent with his spirit. Making the gospel contagious. Ultimately unifying, and in the end, uplifting. There's a thought I just want to close with. There's no law in heaven. There's no law. Like we talk about, we want our church to be heavenly. Like we want our lives to be heavenly. Like we want, we're in prep mode for heaven, right? That our eyes are on heaven. It could come any day. No man knows the hour. And yet every time you examine heaven, from the book of Revelation to the prophets, you'll never find the law. Anywhere. And yet over and over and over again, and you can look at this in the book of Revelation, there's one word that's constantly arising in heaven. Grace. Not law, but grace. So if you want to condition yourself for heaven, if you want to walk in a heavenly sense, if you want to be uplifted, 
It's not the law. But it's God's amazing grace.